What wonderful worship music. I'm so grateful for that. And I do want to thank my president for this invitation to speak before you today. You may be wondering why I'm preaching today and not next year. Actually, it's all about the money. Today, I can stand here, preach, nothing wrong. If I come back a year from now, then the seminary has to rent a walker, some oxygen bottles. So it's all about the money, and we just decided to save funds by letting me go ahead and uh, speak this time. <laughs> Dr. Dockery's in, in introduction of me was very complete. He did leave out one fact, though. Some of you know the comedian Nate Bargatze. What you may not know is I was his student pastor. All through junior high, high school, I was his student pastor. I just want to make the point that having the right student pastor can mean a great deal in your career. You might want to remember that moving forward. I got I to just say thank you to the seminary family uh, for prayer for my family. Some of you that have been here a while prayed for my son for 10 straight years, and here he sits this morning, more recently praying for my wife who is in a brand new season of life, and I must say to you how much I appreciate your care, but especially uh, your prayers. As you heard in the introduction, I've had a lifetime focus on young people. And to be perfectly honest, I am as excited and as committed to teenagers today as I was when I was 19. Nothing has changed. In fact, I want you to know while I was preparing this message, the question I kept asking myself was this. If this is my last time to stand here, what is it that I would want to say? What would I leave with you if I don't get to say anything else? I'm gonna share with you my answer in this message. And I need to say, some of you drive a hybrid. I'm actually gonna preach a hybrid. This is mostly gonna be a sermon, but it's also going to be a State of the Union address related to the church's ministry with young people. I want you right now to picture your church a few years from now. It's Sunday morning worship. The only people in the auditorium is a little group of senior adults huddled right down front. No one responds to the invitation as usual. After the service, they call themselves into a called business meeting because the power company is gonna turn off the electricity due to unpaid bills. Okay, erase all of that. Picture your church on a Sunday morning, but it's different. The auditorium is packed with folding chairs in the back. The service begins with a 15-minute baptistry service and ends with special prayer over three teams all headed out to international missions. Okay, what can make the difference? I wanna focus on at least one possibility. Here's the thesis of this sermon. The church's ministry with the young today will make a massive difference in the church tomorrow. I want you to turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. 
This message is gonna focus on verse three of Psalm 110. Now, my friends in this service, you would fully expect me to preach on verses one and two since those are my favorite verses in the Bible, but we're gonna focus on verse three. Verse one and two do provide important context, so I am gonna begin at verse one. I'll be reading from the ESV, the same version that Jesus used. Psalm, <laughs> Psalm 110, beginning at verse one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, of course, the best commentary on scripture is scripture. Jesus, Luke, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, they all point to Psalm 110 verse one as referring to the enthronement of the son by the father. Acts 1 says this took place on the 40th day after the resurrection. Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives and was enthroned by his father. Mark 16, 19 says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now let's move on to verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Of course, scepter here, it's a symbol of power and authority. Okay, see the picture. On the throne, with the scepter, Christ now reigns, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the father says to his enthroned son, rule in the midst of your enemies. And that's exactly what King Jesus has been doing for the last 2,000 years. I wanna show you something. Let this diamond represent Jesus Christ. Every one of these facets represents part of his characteristic, part of his being. For instance, one facet would be suffering servant. Now I ask you, what facet is that on top? In my mind, that facet is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is the facet that in my mind at least gives meaning to all the other facets. The CSB has at verse three, your people will volunteer on the day of your battle. The NASB has, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. God is saying, son, when you're enthroned, believers will join you in battle. In 2023, that's us. We are the volunteers. But notice the next phrase, in holy garments. So, so we have this big army of volunteers, but they're not wearing camo. Instead, they're wearing the beautiful garments worn by the priest. The next phrase is, from the womb of the morning. In other words, from the earliest part of the morning. Then we come to the phrase that is the heart of this message. The ESV has, the dew of your youth will be yours. And that is one possible reading. The best commentaries all say that there are several readings of the Hebrew that are possible. I lean toward an interpretation captured by several Bible translators. Look, look at this translation. On the sacred mountains, your young men come to you like the dew born from the dawn. Another translation has festively adorned as fresh as the day at dawn, your young recruits gather themselves to you. Why do I prefer this interpretation? Because it captures 
The parallelism between the army in the first part of the verse and the young recruits in the second half of the verse. So let me repeat. Festively adorned, as fresh as the day at dawn, your young recruits gather themselves to you. When King Jesus is enthroned, he gets a big army, but the spotlight is on the youth. Could that mean in every age, God has unique plans for young people? If so, what would that mean in our day? Okay, for a minute, just forget all the depressing trends. What if the church right now made some major changes in its ministry with youth? What if teenagers moved to the forefront of what King Jesus is doing? What could happen? First, the young could bring revival to the church if God wills it to be so. Can teenagers spark revival? You know about Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the First Great Awakening, but he was also a careful historian of revival. Do you know what Jonathan Edwards himself said? And indeed, it has commonly been so, when God has begun any great work for the revival of the church, he has taken the young people and has cast off the old and the stiff-necked generation. That's what the historian says. It's been the young people. In the classes I teach, I carefully point out how students sparked the first and the second great awakening. I point out the place of students in the global awakening of 1904, which by the way was sparked by a middle school girl. And I have seen students spark revival with my own eyes. I was right in the middle of the Jesus movement. Perhaps you saw the Jesus Revolution movie about that revival. Now, I want to be humble, but I was actually in that movie. Maybe you didn't realize that. The movie included an actual aerial shot of a Jesus festival. There were a quarter of a million of us in that festival, and one of those pixels down there is me. I want you to always know that. Be happy for you to touch me after the service today. Wouldn't it be just like Jesus to raise up an anxious and depressed generation to spark a revival? Of course, our activity cannot bring revival. Only God can make the winds of revival blow. But new approaches in student ministry can raise the sails for revival. Second, the young could reform the culture. The young set directions for a culture. It's always been that way. I want you to listen to a remarkable statement made by Billy Graham. Young people have been used both to save and destroy nations. Adolf Hitler built his new Germany on a foundation of teenage Nazis by capturing the hearts of young people. China's Red Guard, mostly teenagers, turned China upside down. Castro was able to seize the imagination of Cuban youth and lead them into a revolution. Young people can change a culture. I want you to picture King Jesus. He moves into the culture and riding right behind him is his army of young volunteers. That can be powerful. They can turn everything upside down in our day as they have done before. Third, the young can take the gospel to the last groups on earth. 
Just consider the number of unreached people groups. We actually know that number. Consider the number of students and youth and college groups. The math works. This generation can finish the task. Now I'm here to tell you my metal knees are not gonna backpack into some remote village, but the young can do that. They can walk into that last village and present the gospel in a relevant way. And by doing so, they can complete that part of the Great Commission in our lifetime. Well, in your lifetime. But what if the church doesn't make changes? What if everything stays about the same? Then what does the future hold? First, the harvest among lost teenagers will continue to fall. 1972, Jesus Revolution. 1972, from that year till this morning, baptisms among SBC teenagers has dropped in half. What does that mean for lost teenagers? It means teenagers living in torment forever. It means teenagers having a perfectly rotten life here on earth. And it means the loss of what they could have meant to the kingdom. That's intolerable. Second, churches will become increasingly empty. And you might say, oh, really? Well, maybe in 100 years. No, in the near future. I'm gonna show you how fast change can happen. I'm going to read to you from Judges 2. We find Joshua at the end of his life. You can just listen. Joshua at the end of his life, Judges 2 verse 7, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Then verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Did you get that? In only one generation, we have a young generation that knew nothing about what God had done. What was the immediate result of that? Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. This coming Sunday morning, in the grand churches of Western Europe, you will see in so many places that little huddle of senior adults, and they're just waiting for those people to die before they sell the larger churches for nightclubs and they sell the smaller churches for coffee shops. It's happening all over Europe. And we are right behind them. Third, the culture will increasingly collapse. Hollywood, Madison Avenue, Wall Street, they all follow youth trends, you know that. If even more high school and college students descend into chaos, the culture will just follow them down. Fourth, reduced church contributions will handicap kingdom activity. Can I just ask you, are you hoping for a salary in ministry? After the senior adults pass away, where are those finances gonna come from? Here's a very famous scripture. If you keep doing what you've been doing, you will keep getting what you've been getting. 
I think that's from the book of Hezekiah. And if you don't know why that's funny, you've got bigger problems than finals next week. <laughs> that now you're laughing. <laughs> With a very few little tweaks, we're doing student ministry the way it was done in 1950. Don't you think it's time for a change? I do. Here are what I think are the most necessary changes. First, awaken the full church to the glory of King Jesus. I will be the first to admit teenagers are full of moral therapeutic deism. Now, when I speak at Disciple Now weekend, as I will this coming weekend in Alabama, I can't walk in and say, hey, kids, you're full of moral therapeutic deism. So what I have to do is translate. So sometimes I'll say, hey, young people, do you have little Jesus in your pocket? Is he so not relevant to your life that you can keep him tucked away until, of course, you have a problem or a need and then you can whip out little Jesus to poof your problem away? Is it just a little Jesus? Now, here's what I've got to say. Young people are full of moral therapeutic deism because the American church is full of moral therapeutic deism. The young people are simply reflecting the adults of the church. The big picture is this. To see a young generation awakened to Christ, we need to see the entire church awakened to Christ. David Bryant defines a Christ awakening this way. A Christ awakening is when God's spirit uses God's word to reintroduce God's people to God's son for all that he is. Think back to our text in Psalm 110. That is the perspective of King Jesus. We need the whole church standing before the throne shouting, Jesus, you don't primarily exist to make our lives easier. We exist for your great glory. Second, Take the gospel to teenagers outside the church. An attractional model of evangelism alone is not adequate in our day. We cannot out entertain the world anymore. They can get better pizzas other places. Our focus must be on gospel conversations outside the church. We need the pastors leading the way with teachers, parents, and teenagers right behind them. Third, truly disciple parents. Most of the time, parents have the greatest influence on lifetime faith, but that can be good news or bad news. The good news is that parents can have greater influence than any programs, but parents can't pass on what they have not received. That's why they need to be discipled. Here's what the research says. Lost parents usually rear children who become lost adults. Disciple parents usually rear children who become disciple adults. Spiritually shallow parents rear children who walk away from the faith. And the church is full of shallow parents. If we don't genuinely disciple parents, we're going to lose a generation. Fourth, Give teenagers relationships with all the generations. Teenagers today are much more likely to say, I love my youth group than I love my church. When they outgrow the youth group, they just leave the church. 
every researcher, every thought leader is calling for an intergenerational church, but the church just keeps doing what it's been doing. I challenge you to create environments where relationships flourish across generations. Perhaps the new incense of the church will be Old Spice intermingled with Acts. Fifth, fifth, give teenagers ministry roles in the full church. Why would students remain in a church in which they have no investment? I'll say again, why would students remain in a church in which they've made no investment? We say to grade schoolers, sit still and someday you can do something in the church. We say to middle schoolers, sit still and someday you can do something in the church. We even say to high schoolers, sit still and someday you can do something in the church. But later we say to the adults, hey, get up and go to work. But the adults do what we train them to do. We, they just sit still. In your church, in your church, how many teenagers are on church ministry teams and committees? How many teenagers are on platform on Sunday morning? How many teenagers have leadership roles with children? Again, why would students remain in a church in which they've made no investment? Finally, saturate all five of those strategies with prayer. We're modeling that very thing here at Southwestern, saturating everything we do in prayer. If you're paying attention, you will learn how to lead a church to pray. Now, we ought to be leaving every chapel asking, what am I going to do about that message? To that end, let me personalize this sermon for every one of you. For those of you preparing to be senior pastors, I challenge you to craft some of your sermons designed specifically to evangelize, transform, and send out teenagers. Exalt King Jesus and then cause the young to rise up and march with him. And pastors, I want to challenge you to go with your students to youth camp. And don't stay in some elegant speaker suite. You bunk with the middle school boys. That aroma on the last day will bless your life. <laughs> yes, yes, that's a sacrifice. But one week of investment in relationships leads to 52 weeks of sermon impact. For those of you preparing to be worship leaders, I preach at many youth camps and Disciple Now weekends, and there are many worship bands that proclaim great theology. But there are also bands that only emphasize Jesus just wants to hug you and make your problems all better. Now, there is some truth to that message, but it's so much more important to challenge students to rise up, consider everything else a loss, and join the king in changing the world. To those of you preparing to be discipleship leaders, to see the young marching with King Jesus, we need parents who've been discipled. We need those who teach teenagers to be discipled. We need the congregation to be discipled. Sunday morning Bible classes and worship services are absolutely essential. They are at the heart of a New Testament church. But we've done those things for decades and most of the congregation is still shallow. We need to add 
intentional discipleship mirroring the investment of Jesus in Peter, James, and John. We need discipleship pastors who know how to disciple adults. And if you don't know what that means, we welcome you into the Terry School. Those of you preparing to be student pastors. Missionaries make sacrifices. You being a missionary to the young might mean a more modest salary. I'm asking you, would you sacrifice out of your love for King Jesus and his kids? The student ministry I'm presenting to you this morning is complicated. Will you become thoroughly trained for your calling? I want you to imagine a grad student who says, I'm passionate about being an architect, but I'm just going to take some general liberal arts classes. I'm sure I can figure out architecture on my own. How do you think that's going to turn out? In 1949, Dr. Phil Harris became the first professor of youth ministry in the Southern Baptist Convention. At what school? Southwestern, of course. Most SBC colleges and seminaries have closed down their student ministry programs. But today, Dr. Dockery, Dr. Grace, Dr. Shirley have the same commitment to the next generation as we had in 1949. Those of you preparing to be missionaries, what age group is most strategic to kingdom advancement? I would say the young generation. There are 1.3 billion teenagers on earth and in many places they're an unreached people group. But they can become the church of today and the church of tomorrow. One of the key components of your mission strategy should be on focusing on reaching, discipling, and mobilizing the young. Those of you preparing to serve in an SBC agency, state convention, or school. In the year 2000, SBC agencies, state conventions, and schools had about 50 leaders supporting student ministry in the church. Every year since 2000, that number has dropped. Now it's about half what it was. I recognize financial pressures are real, but if you're going to serve in an SBC entity, I challenge you to take the long view. If we lose a generation, what's the point? Empty churches won't even need agencies and state conventions and schools. In conclusion, Psalm 110 verse three says, festively adorned, as fresh as the day at dawn, your young recruits gather themselves to you until they pull a sheet over my face in hospice. I'm going to focus on evangelizing and discipling and sending out the young, and I invite you to join me. Would you pray? Holy Spirit of God, magnificent Father, reigning Son, those of us in this chapel, those of us watching, we adore you. We exalt you. We love your body, the church. We know it will prevail. But Father, for individual churches and individual denominations, the future is less clear. Father, I'm praying every person in this service will search in their heart to know how is it with my specific calling, 
I'm to come alongside what the Father is doing with the young. Lord Jesus, we do pray for revival. We pray for a restoration of reaching out to the young. We pray that they would move forward and transform the culture. Father, all we want is to see you receive the glory which you so richly deserve. To this end, I pray in your name, amen and amen.